Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Ladies and gentlemen, uh... Can I please have your attention? Greetings, dear listeners. It's uh, Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant uh, podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. I'm less ebullient about it because we have kind of a, these are sort of somber, sober times. So I've told you guys a few times about the skiff, which is like our for members only uh, podcast feed, and it's sort of uh, we're we're still searching for all the best metaphors for it. It's a little bit like a um, Adam and I were talking about making it like an audio blog, sort of like you know I want to have I want to get something version of the corner on the dispatch, and since Steve is still being dyspeptic about that, this is sort of satisfies satisfies that a little bit, and it's a place where we can for members only have what some people might call emergency podcasts, but also just like conversations, quick conversations about single topics, multiple topics, whatever you want to talk about. If Kevin Williamson writes something interesting that I disagree with or that I agree with or whatever, I can say, hey, Kevin, you want to join me in the skiff for five minutes or 10 minutes or 20 minutes or whatever, and we can argue about it or talk about it, and then that's it. We were, uh, the plan was to sort of soft launch it this week. Um, You can go under podcasts and you can see it and just follow very simple instructions about how if you're a paid member, you can tell whatever podcast app or, or most podcast apps, if you have some very obscure Bulgarian podcast app, it may be a little more complicated and you have to listen through the website. But, mo- you know, Apple Podcasts, you know, those kinds of things. You just follow our little instructions on your phone or wherever or whatever device you listen to and it will embed the ability to get past the paywall in your podcast player. So it's really easy. You do it once, you're done, okay? But anyway, as many of you know, uh, there's been these terrible events in Israel. And all weekend, the dispatch team has been uh, talking in Slack and in text about everything that's going on. And one person who's, I don't want to say he's dominated the conversation, but he had a, you know, a unique perspective on the conversation was our senior multimedia producer, we, we, we call him Adam in all things. It's like Bono or Cher or whatever. He's a one-name guy internally, but he wants to inflict this pain on everybody. Adam James Levin already. And uh, he's from Israel. Uh, and I had this idea over the weekend. Um, I texted him and said, hey, why don't we just do a, a, a quick sort of trial run, skiff conversation about what's going on in Israel, 10, 15 minutes, whatever. Um, cover these points and and move on. And he said, that's a great idea. Let's do it. And it was funny. And then I texted him a few minutes before we started. And I said, you do realize I'll be interviewing you. And he was like, oh. Oh, okay. We guess we can do that. You know, because he kind of thought I would be just uh, doing monologuing for the most part and then occasionally going to him. And I was like, I don't think that's, 
a real value add for listeners. He's the one with the expertise. And so it turned into an interesting conversation. If it sounds like I'm talking too much, I probably agree because it was much more interesting listening to him. We went over an hour and I really could have gone probably another hour if I wasn't on the hook to make dinner last night. We put in the skiff. I want to be pretty clear. We're not going to do this all the time, but there's breaking news. It's important news. It was an interesting conversation. We didn't cover every topic under the sun in regards to all of this, which, you know, some of which, you know, again, that's why I could have gone another hour. But I think the first hour was pretty compelling. Uh, we thought it was sort of both as a sort of public service thing and also as a kind of a marketing thing for the skiff to give you a hint of like just kind of some of the content you get if you were a paid uh, subscriber to the dispatch. So we decided to bring it out from the paywall and make it the first remnant of the week. I hope everybody who's a paid member understands what we're doing here and everybody who's not a paid member understands what we're doing here and all incentives are aligned properly. But the important thing is, is I think you should listen to the conversation. With that, here we go. So, you know, something happened. Uh, Israel got invaded or attacked. People are going to be coming up with the, we're still in the gelling conventional wisdom phase of all of this. So the official terms for this are what it's going to be called, what this day will be called, you know, um, Israel's 9-11, which we'll talk about in a second, which I think is dumb. Um, uh, but Israel got attacked. They got essentially blindsided. Uh, it's another thing we should talk about is that it was a, it's already sort of widely stipulated that this was a massive intelligence failure, regardless of all the other things that it was. And um, we were talking about it a lot in Slack. Lots of people had different points of view, watching different things, hearing different things. And one of the people who was reactive in the Slack from the beginning, for kind of obvious reasons, was our own Adam, who is, uh, was born in Israel from Israel, has family and friends in Israel. Born in New York, actually, but raised in Israel. Born in New York? Yeah. I did not know <laughs> that. Okay, so born in New York, but grew up for some extended period. All of it, all of it. That accent. Born in New York and immediately absconded to Israel. Okay. So that accent doesn't come from no, New York. No, no. My shawarma accent, no, it's not from New York. <laughs> and, uh, and so I was talking to Adam and said, hey, you know, maybe we should just do a little trial run of this kind of thing. Um, in the skiff. And he said, great idea. So that's what we're doing. So um, just to level set a little bit more, um, we're recording this at about 5.35 on Saturday night. And um, things still look bad. It's nighttime in Israel now, obviously. There's seven hours ahead, right? And from East Coast. And um, lots of civilians have been killed. Sounds like the majority of the Israelis killed were civilians. Some of the footage on social media is absolutely horrifying. Now, I just want to be sort of clear about this in terms of just sort of where I'm coming from. It shouldn't surprise anybody. It's morally indefensible, horrifying. Like you can, you can credit all the arguments you want about how the Palestinians have been mistreated, how they're not victims of their own leadership. They're victims of Israeli occupation and oppression and all of that. And there are serviceable and credible arguments in that direction from that direction and there are bad arguments from that direction we can get to that another time but any political ideological justification that you want to offer um that you think justifies dragging women and children out of their homes and shooting them in cold blood in front of their rare family members 
or anything along those lines, killing parents in front of their children, desecrating bodies and showing it all and cheering about it on social media. Um, there's no ideological justification for that. You have to be willing to talk about what's going on here at a very high level of abstraction to be able to say, oh, this was justified. There are a bunch of jackasses on Twitter all day talking about how, you know, this is, uh, um, Gaza has escaped its prison. Well, I was just going to say, if I, I got, if, even if somebody was falsely imprisoned or imprisoned under false pretenses, and they escape, and then they go around murdering and raping. I don't, I don't feel a lot of sympathy for the escaped prisoner. I, I don't know. They, sure, maybe they were victims of some sort of injustice. But if you escape prison only to commit <laughs> all the crimes that you were accused of in the first place, hmm, I'm not sure this achieves exactly the sort of moral heavy lifting you think it does. If Martin Luther King left the Birmingham jail and then went around kidnapping old ladies murdering women, <laughs> murdering children, our views of Martin Luther King would be different. I think that's a fair, fair statement to make. And the whole escape their prison thing, which is a, this very common, people think it's like this mic drop, brilliant formulation. A normal person would say, okay, so you're saying if we let these people out of prison, they're going to do this. Sounds to me like they should be in a prison. Now, I don't, I'm not saying Gaza is a prison. I'm not crediting the metaphor. But it's their metaphor, and it's really friggin' stupid on their terms. But it's all over the place. And no, but you see, Jonah, it's the prison that turned them into the monsters they are now. Yes. Okay. But at the same time, you know, you, you hear a lot of that stuff, and yet at the same time, you know, Gaza has a charter that calls for the eradication of all Israelis, right? I mean, so it's like it's in writing. They put it. It's like in Jerry Maguire. You put it in writing, right? I mean, it's like <laughs> um, I think it goes when the Jews try hiding behind stones and trees. Those stones and trees will say, "Look behind me! A Jew is hiding. Come and slaughter them." In almost every other sphere of life, the people who are sort of take who are either anti anti Hamas or pro Hamas. These are the people who think Maya Angelou's thing about how if people tell you who they are, believe them, is like the height of wisdom. But when it comes to like Hamas saying death to Israel or the, you know, the Israeli parliament, the Iranian parliament saying death to Israel is like, no, no, you have to understand this is a complicated question here. And this is this is what 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 Israel has done to them that they say these things. And it just takes enormous moral and intellectual gymnastics to get into some of this stuff. So, um, but enough about like my, my, my moral outrage about all this, which we'll come back to again. I, you know, the first question I need to ask you is like, are all your friends and family back home? Okay. Uh, like, is everyone all right? Uh, so, so first I need to uh, preamble by saying that I, I, I am discombobulated still. I have not slept. I don't think I, I don't think I was able to sleep one minute today. I was just constantly on the phone with said friends and family. My mom. Yeah, you were in Slack at like two in the yeah, morning. Yeah, or something uh, like that. Uh, yeah. Uh, it, it didn't really click to me what was happening until around maybe 1am. And then that was it. I was just I was in bed all day. Oh, I was in bed all night talking to my mom. And um, talking to Emma, talking to my friends over there, texting, and um, I think for the past twenty-four hours—not uh, twenty-four, but not yet twenty-four hours—but the past however long um, since the invasion, nobody has left their apartments practically. If 
only mm-hmm. maybe to go to shelter when they heard the sirens. But at the moment, I don't know of anyone who's not accounted for. So mm-hmm. that's, that's a good thing for now, I guess. But I, but I do need to apologize that um, this is not what I hoped the first uh, um, episode of The Skiff would be like. I was kind of hoping for something with a little more jovial merriment in, in the tone. Sure. This is not exactly the tone that we were going for with a cute pirate skiff on the on the logo. So um, I, I apologize for the morosity and um, for my probably inability to articulate my thought in any measured or even coherent way. Um, I think this is one of those kinds of areas where most reasonable people are going to give you a bit of a pass on that <laughs> kind of thing. Um, so uh, and 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 and. As we've talked about offline before, you know, Israelis have a much higher tolerance for sort of dark humor <laughs> and gallows humor uh, than, than than many Americans Jew, American Jews do about things Jewish and whatnot. And so, you know, any jocularity that interrupts him <laughs> here should be understood in that yes. that that vein. So, where to begin on this? So, like 1948. Uh, <laughs> Sure. I mean, I don't think we have to, we, I don't think we need to lay no. out the entire case for Israel right now. Right. I mean, um, um, I mean, let me put it this way. So, I mean, I hope not. I, I, I feel like this conversation needs to advance on the baseline assumption that Israel exists and has some right to continue to do so. That's right. I mean, like, um, I listened to this guy on the BBC who, uh, a member of Likud, who's a member of parliament. And so, you know, he's, comes from a certain point of view, obviously, but um, he was really taking to this BBC host for a prior interview with a journalist who was, you know, saying how, in effect, this is what you get when you crack down so hard on Gaza. <laughs> and and he just kind of lost it on the interviewer saying, this is ridiculous. And, and one of the points he made, I think is a really good one, which is that in most Western countries, no one really gets away, except, I mean, they're always fringe goofballs, but like no normal, relatively normal person, even very left-wing people who have real problems with American foreign policy or Western foreign policy or colonialism or whatever you want to call it, you don't hear a lot of, you have to really understand where Al-Qaeda is coming from. You have to really understand, you know, what brought ISIS to this point of desperation. But that is the go-to thing for Hamas and for for Hezbollah um, and some and Islamic Jihad and some of these other groups is this got to go to the root causes and the second you go to root causes it ends up becoming at best a sort of carom shot about how Israel invited these mm-hmm. problems. Um, like what goes through your head when you hear that kind of stuff? There, are, <laughs> I'm going to try to answer this putting myself in my head in any other day but today. Sure, fair. Things are a little more muddled now and a little more angry. But normally, my reaction to this is just how patronizing this idea is to Palestinians, to any any culture that is being put in the box of (laughs) your actions are entirely the mechanistic, deterministic results of somebody else's agency. You are not complete Mm -hmm. human beings with capacity for volition. This is insane. This is morally repugnant. And the fact that people 
believe that this puts them in the side of compassion or of justice is corrupt. It's perverse. You have lost several plots to get here and or boring your own tale. Yeah, I mean, there's this weird thing, I think, and we, I, we should talk about some of the media coverage here. In part, normally you don't do a lot of media criticism stuff here, but there's still a lot of facts we don't know. And, and we're getting a lot of stuff through the prism of these off-the-shelf narratives that kind of define yeah. American coverage of this stuff when anything happens, right? And so, and in fairness, you know, there, there are pro-Israel pre-made narratives that come For off sure. the shelf too. Um, but, um, you know, one of the things that always kind of bothers me is there's a certain amount of sort of, there's this cognitive dissonance thing, right? Where like... My favorite two words. <laughs> um, where in normal circumstances, if one were to say all Muslims are in favor of terrorism or all Muslims are, uh, are, are, are fanatics or anything like that, or all Arabs are fanatics or anything like that, there's a righteous and legitimate pushback on that, right? That is just like gross stereotyping of hundreds of millions of people and all that kind of thing. But then the second something like this happens, there is this argument that somehow the quote-unquote Arab street and or the or the Arab world, right, which is the old phrase, or the Muslim world is all in favor of Hamas. And yet in a lot of Arab countries, a lot of Muslim countries, the Islamists are not popular like with normal people. Like most normal Arabs and Muslims don't join these groups and they don't think they're necessarily they don't want them in charge or in power. It's only when they kill Jews, basically, that all of a sudden they are the authentic voice you know, of the Arab or Muslim world. And it's just this really weird thing because like if I say it, oh, this is what all Arabs want or all Muslims want, which I do not believe in the right, slightest, right, right? Of course. But if I were to say it, they say you're a bigot. But then they say it as a defense. It's just this really weird tension that I cannot, you know, that you cannot sort of logically untie. I mean, it's... It goes to, well, <laughs> we both had uh, Yasha Monk on our respective podcasts. And one, one of the interesting points in his, in his book is this practical or strategic essentialism, right? The specific idea of strategic essentialism. It goes back mm-hmm. to this magic trick on the academic left of, of course, of course, it's appalling and grotesque and immoral to think of humanity in terms of groups of immutable characteristics, of course. But sometimes it's useful to think in this way. So when it's politically expedient, then the Arab world becomes this monolith fighting a single foe. When the West talks about the Arab world as unitary or homogenized, it's Orientalism. But when we do it, it's essentialism with a human face. And this lunacy ends up devaluing the lives of the people who actually suffer the consequences of this conflict. And I'm not talking about my people. I'm talking about the Palestinians. Mm-hmm. A few years ago, I interviewed a Gazan refugee who escaped Gaza through an intense rigmarole. He had to bribe a million people, survive his journey on a little dinghy to Turkey and then to a Greek refugee camp until finally being relocated to Germany. Now, it's not like he and his fellow refugees are huge fans of Israel. Right. But the things that they were escaping were not the Israeli blockade. It was Hamas's regime. 
It was Hamas not letting anybody go on with their normal lives or their version of a normal life. It was Hamas putting their friends in prison time after time whenever they would try to speak out, not to topple Hamas, not in some crazy subversive way, just to say maybe we should focus more on growing our own lives, economy, and well-being and not send our 10-year-olds to die in skirmishes with Israel. For this, he and his friends were time after time thrown to prison and tortured by Hamas. And in the meantime, Hamas insists on expropriating all the wealth, any kind of wealth that gets accumulated or funneled to this little strip of land and use it to dig more tunnels, buy more weapons, and train more 10-year-olds to die in skirmishes with Israel. In fact, that's the thing that horrifies me, maybe above all, in this horrific attack, is that Hamas knows this is suicide. Hamas knows that the brutality that it unleashed is going to lead to Gaza getting flattened. Mm -hmm. This brazen attack only means to me that either, or, or, or both could be true, but either there, there's a next stage to it where Hezbollah joins in or, or Iran, through some other proxies, instigates a bigger regional war to stop the Saudi agreement, or it really is open to the idea of total kamikaze, we're making our move, Israel will flatten us, and the political results of this is actually what we're interested in. We're not interested in the next step after Gaza has been completely extirpated. And I, I, I can't, when, when I try to think of the, the, the people, <laughs> the decision makers in, in, in Hamas, that, will, that, that all they need is control over, you know, a few hundred people in this strip, like, strip of what I think a million something right. uh, individuals. They just need a few hundred people who are willing to go along with it while the leadership obviously hides in bunkers or in Qatar or wherever. And that's it. They're basically sentencing their kin, the people that they're supposedly, whose freedom they're supposedly fighting for, for months, if not years of, I, I don't know. I, I don't know what to think. It's, just, just, just abhor. Yeah. So it's it's uh, one way to think about this, and you can tell that the more I try to grapple with it, the the, the less sentences get finished. Yeah. No, I, I I totally get it. I mean, I totally get it. Um, I tried to have some text conversation with our friend John Podoritz about all this, and he was like, "Yeah, the uh, rocket blew out all the windows in my sister's building," and um. Um, and he sent me a picture of his nephew suiting up because he was called up from the reserve. And it's like, I'm just going to give him a little space on this right now. Um. Hello, it is Ryan. And I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Okay, so let's take a second to hear from our sponsor, Aura Frames. Longtime listeners know I'm a big fan of Aura Frames, I've gotten them as gifts. 
I've given them as gifts. I sent my daughter back to college with one so she could look at many, many, many pictures of her cat and I guess her parents as well. So if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life, Aura frames are a beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. I can attest, it is very easy to use, very intuitive. You don't have to read a lot of documentation. And it's just like you load the app and it says, of what pictures do you want in your frame and you put them in your frame and you can change them and you can set the settings to whatever you want for how long the pictures stay there. It's pretty idiot proof. From grandmothers to new mothers, aunts, and even the friends in your life, every mom loves an Aura frame. Named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's AuraFrames.com. A-U-R-A Frames.com. Use the promo code REMNANT at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. I mean, one way, so like it's, it's, two things. It, it might be useful kind of to sort of, because I, I, you know, when I, it's funny, this morning, I was so, I was outraged by MSNBC's coverage. Like, CNN had, you know, and I'm, full disclosure, I'm a CNN, you know, contributor or whatever. And CNN had, you know, conventional liberals who had made, I made what I thought were dumb arguments or, or, or not dumb as but, you know, conventional arguments that I disagree with. Yeah. Arguments I disagree with about this stuff, you know, the kind of, you know, Obama or, or, you know, retread types who had positions I disagree with about foreign policy that annoyed me. But they covered it pretty straight. I mean, Wolf Blitzer, who was a correspondent in Jerusalem for a very long time, he knows this stuff pretty well. And he, he just basically just asked questions of different people and move on. But on MSNBC, it was Ali Velshi and this other guy whose name I can't remember. Um, both of whom I believe got their starts at, at Al Jazeera, you know, which is a guitar owned yeah. outlet. And immediately their whole thing was to provide quote unquote context for viewers so that they understand that you shouldn't be that offended or horrified. This is what this is the only way I can interpret it that offended or horrified by these images of people being dragged out of their home, bodies being desecrated, people cheering as they take hostages, all of this kind of stuff, um, just blatant atrocities, right, that are absolute violations of the laws of war. And really sort of, you know, someone on, someone was making this point earlier today from Foundation for Defense of Democracies, is like Hamas calls this a war, but really what it is is more like a medieval tribal raid where you run into a defenseless village, slaughter some people, take some hostages, and then go parade corpses around. I mean, it's not, it's, it's, it's not war in the modern sense in, in almost any way. So I, I posted some stuff about it. I posted like a three-minute clip that really bothered me. And the responses were from a lot of people were like, oh, sure, Jewish guy who loves Israel is shocked to find out Muslim guys um, like Hamas or something like that. It was like, it was this complete essentialism nonsense, right? 
And so I think it's kind of important to make even, the point. Even Palestinians in the West Bank don't like Hamas. What, right. what are we talking about? No, like, exactly. Right. And cer- certainly people in Gaza don't like Hamas because they actually need to live under Hamas. And no, but very few people who live under Hamas think, man, this is great. This is exactly the amount of political freedom I want. This is nonsense. The, by the way, the reason most of the refugees that I've, I've, I've interviewed had to escape Gaza was precisely because they wanted to criticize Hamas, not to say that, not, not based on uh, Israeli Jewish neocon propaganda, but because, uh, <laughs> but just based on, hey, we we would like some some social services and and a functioning hospital and and a place to work instead of recruiting our ten year olds to go fight Israel. Right, right, right. And and my point is is like. So a couple of points. One is, again, if, if you went to an, any, almost any normal Arab person or Muslim person that you know, that you work with, that lives in your community, anything like that. When I say normal, I just mean like average, right? I don't mean like, I'm not trying to be like, give some sort of pejorative stink to normal. I just mean like any random right, Arab right. or Muslim person and say, and you said to them, look at this video of this woman being butchered. You must love this. They would take it as a profound insult, right? <laughs> I mean, like, what the hell are you talking about? What makes you think I love <laughs> watching, you know, a 90-year-old woman get shot? Like, and yet that is sort of the underlying assumption of a lot of this crap. And and I think that one so one way to make a point is like there are a lot of very galaxy brain people out here who are sort of on the anti-Ukraine side who are giving themselves hernias today, trying to say, don't you dare compare what's happening in Israel to what's happening to Ukraine. They're completely different things. And I will argue, like, as a nature of the military conflict, they're different. The geopolitical considerations are different. But it gets to this, your point about the agency thing, right? Like, I am as offended by Russians dragging out Orthodox Christian Ukrainians and raping them and murdering them and shooting them in the back of the head and torturing them as I am by Palestinians dragging Israelis out of their homes and doing those things. It's not, I'm not making an ethnic particularist, you know, argument here. I'm saying this, these actions, regardless of whatever geopolitical arguments you want to make, these actions in and of themselves, the thing in itself is evil. And you cannot come up with some elaborate rhetorical cathedral that decontextualizes it to the point of an abstraction where you say, well, you have to understand the root cause. No, anything that led you to this point does not justify doing this. And that point just gets lost in all this stuff because people want to reduce it to these sort of cartoons. And the idea that being disempowered in one situation inevitably not just necessarily, but also inevitably, like I said, mechanistically, deterministically, turns you into... A monster. The yeah. most monstrous version, the most ghoulish version of humanity. Right. The, the, that's not... I've, if that were true... I, I have relatives who survived the Holocaust, and part of my family that grew up in Israel, um, I, we've just talked about this, I'm, um, from my grandfather's side, I'm ninth generation Israeli, and they lived under... They've survived many atrocities from many different nations under ne- several different regimes. And I, I don't know of any Levine who, who partook in, in the occasional marauding mm-hmm. as, a, as, as the inevitable connection to the, their inner brute. Right. I mean, I mean, it's so easy to falsify, right? When you just say, well, 
how come every single homeless person in America isn't a deranged psychopathic murderer, right? They're powerless, right? They have, they have, they have, they have no, uh, opportunity. They all, they aren't that way. Not every black person in Jim Crow South or in the ghetto or in the Jewish ghettos going back a gazillion years took these recourses, right? I mean, it's, 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 it, 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 it is just, it is dehumanizing to say that, well, of course they do this because Israelis made them do it. Right. And, and it gets really, really tiresome. But none of this sh- should be an, an endorsement or condemnation or any comment on the morality or lack thereof of the Israeli policy in, in the occupied territories or the blockade on Gaza. Whatever you think about it, we probably disagree about some of the details. Um, this just, just, just does not factor into whether what Hamas just did is tolerable. Right. So, like, let, let me get, to, uh, I'll, I'll ask you your position on, on the occupied territories in a minute. But um, as an Israeli who knows a lot of Israelis, right, is, has a um, much closer attachment to the Israeli mind than I do, a lot of the, in the early morning, a lot of the sort of interviewers uh, would ask various guests, including Israelis, like, um, either factual questions or opinion questions related to whether or not Israel is really going to unify given their political disagreements about the judicial reform stuff and the mass protests and all this kind of thing. And at least all the Israelis that I could tell um, were all like, of course they are. You know, I mean, it's just like, because Israelis don't think that, oh, well, because I disagree about judicial reform, I am, I'm not going to have as big a problem with someone's grandmother being dragged out of their house. Right. And, um, like we're, and there was a lot of surprise I saw from various people and, and, and some of the surprise I can forgive because they only know the sort of narratives that make it across here. Um, were you at all surprised? What do you think about the surprise? I mean, I, it's, it's, it, to me, it's sort of, once you think about it for a little bit, right. it's of course obvious that everyone's going to drop these arguments, there's going to be a unity government if there is. I think there's already is one now, right? Or at least it's good. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's in the process. Uh, yeah. Lapid Gantz and Netanyahu have been circling each other, and Netanyahu says that he he wants to do a a unitary government, a la the Six Day War, which mm-hmm. was transitional. Yeah, I. <laughs> the only reason I can see somebody being surprised by this is having lived in the abstracting experience of the American culture war for so long mm-hmm. and viewing this as the only model for polarization. And the thing that's so uh, fascinating to me as an outsider looking into American culture is how profoundly noxious it is while also being mostly vapid. Mm-hmm. So much of the the tribalism is nothing but a designation of belonging with very little ideology. Whereas in, in Israel, and that's not to say that there isn't it. And you see this when, when opinions on topics that people considered fundamental shift overnight when, mm-hmm. when the other team endorses it or vice versa. Whereas in Israel, the fault lines have always been there. The, the, the divide between the secular and the religious, the divide between the Mizrahi and the Ashkenazi Jews, the divide between the doves and the hawks. All this existed, but all this was within the context of, well, 
we need to do anything we can to protect ourselves from mm-hmm. the existential threat that always surrounds us. And arguably the reason this factionalism heightened in the past 10 years, besides Netanyahu's style of politics, is the fact that, to Netanyahu's credit, the past 10 years, the past decade has been very prosperous mm-hmm. and mostly secure. It has been more secure, basically since I left Israel, the country has been more stable and secure than any time that when I was growing up there. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I grew up during the second intifada. The, I, I had buses blow up outside my high school. I, I, I remember every time that I would go take a bus to high school and middle school, I would think, I really hope I don't die today because this mm-hmm. is a line that exploded a few weeks ago and I would rather keep on living. And I had friends get shot at, and, um, and others blow up in cafes around my neighborhood. So that, that experience um, was taken for granted. This is part of the reason we we accept like dark humor more more fondly than maybe the the American Jews. Um, it's just that was the background of our lives. And in the past ten years, there really haven't been many like massive terror attacks. There really haven't been states of prolonged existential panic, the type that I've experienced and me and my friends experienced growing up. So my term for this, the, for the sort of mindsets that takes hold in times of security is peace privilege. Mm-hmm. The, the West and the U.S. have experienced years of peace privilege, and that's why they, uh, they get to, to dwell in stupid little squabbles. And Israel has enjoyed a sort of peace privilege for a decade, and, and that fueled by Netanyahu's, like I said, particular personality and, uh, and social media and all the other sociological um, uh, influences made Israel a little more culture worry, mm-hmm. But an event like this, when you have uh, like h- hundreds of people, or th- I think the count right now is about 300 people murdered within a few hours, mm-hmm. at least 50 people, if, if reporting is to be believed, kidnapped, m- many of them civilians, and um, thousands of people injured in what is an attack that targeted civilians. There's not. There's who's going to care about the judicial reform? Right. Um, I, I, the, I'm, the, my most lefty friends, my most lefty friends, my friends who would go to East Jerusalem every Friday to protest against um, the, uh, the the forced uh, vacating of Palestinian houses or any kind of injustice that some of which I, I would also consider injustices that have been um, taking place in that area. Um, but but I, I never, I don't protest. I don't like mm-hmm. mass participation of that sort. But my friends would go there every Friday, some of those friends. And they're texting. They, they're now joining up the reserves. They're, yeah. they, they are, I, I hear bloodlust in their, yeah. in their subtext. This is not, this is overriding. You can only expect people to be compassionate and oh, a compassionate, but also willing to have these internal conflicts or to let, really play out these internal conflicts over the identity of the Israeli state, the, the, the character, the, the, the Jewish character of these, uh, of Israel when you're not under attack um, and are terrified for your family. And when you see Teenage girls being dragged by motorcyclists to be to be kidnapped, probably tortured, and for who knows mm-hmm. how long in Gaza. That's the it completely nullifies 
any right. of the all the energy that 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 was there in the background. Now that said, there will be a time to think how the the past year and all the changes in government that have led to the to the protests and the 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 judicial overhaul and everything around it, how that plays into how that influenced or interfaced with mm-hmm. the attack from Gaza. And I don't know. And, and, and I don't think that's, this is the time to really think it through, A, because we don't really have any intel to go on. And second, morally, this is just not the time. Right. But there will be a time. And there, w- there should be hell to pay for people in the Israeli, on the Israeli side for what seems to be an, uh, like undeniably some sort of dereliction to have let this happen. Yeah. This maybe leads us to the 9-11, Israel's 9-11 discussion, but it's, but my, my immediate thought last night, you know, was talking about this with my mom, is, is it's, it's shocking the, how a, the government that was elected to be the most right-wing, most hawkish, most security-minded coalition in Israeli history has had this happen under its watch. Now, doesn't mean that Lapid or anybody else could have done better. We, that's what we don't know. But it's worth remembering that all, all this bombast and, and strongman rhetoric mm-hmm. is just air. It's nothing. Yeah, no, but I, look, I think that's an important point. You know, and, 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 oh, and I was talking to my mom and my mom was saying, you know, it, all, all the more, every time that I see somebody like Ben Gvir and the, the more like uh, Smotrich talk about... Who are those people? Most people don't know who these people oh, are. Oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. Ben Gvir is, the, um, is currently the Minister of Homeland Security and, and the Minister of Police in Israel. He is a former Zionist terrorist. Mm-hmm. designated terrorist by the state of Israel. He was not allowed to run for office until recently, until Netanyahu changed the law to basically give him the exception or it's not exactly pardoning, but basically allow mm-hmm. this person who's in the radical right. And, and, and when I say radical right, I don't, I don't use it in the way that, that the New York Times call anybody like, you know, right of mention as radical mm-hmm. right. This is, we're talking about actual... Mm-hmm. Jewish terrorist. Sort of like a Kahana type. Right? A Kahana I mean, type, exactly. Yeah, okay. And Netanyahu needed him for his coalition. And one of the reasons that this current government got so many people on the left scared, not just on the left, on the center too, is the fact that it, it embraced mm-hmm. um, out of political necessity this person's Ben Veer's radical Jewish might party. Just the name Jewish might should mm-hmm. give you chills. Anyway, his style in public life has been this, you know, very macho, um, we're going to crush them type perorator. Mm-hmm. And it's garbage. And what me and my mom were talking about last night is that seeing Ben Gvir talk, especially now at the, when, when the, the, the Israeli security was shown to be a Potemkin village, this, this Ben Gvir style rhetoric reminds me of Nasrallah, reminds me of all the mm-hmm. strong men of the Arab world who will always say, we tomorrow, tomorrow morning, we're going to crush Israel. And then the next day we're going to crush America and the world will be ours. It's, it's like, okay. And, and nobody, and nobody who listens to this is, you know, it, it, feel, it doesn't seed any fear. It doesn't make anybody quake. <laughs> They're like, yeah, okay. Nasrallah, yeah. that's cute. And hopefully this is how people will start seeing Ben Veer and his type of chauvinist populism. Again, I'm not saying that anybody else could have done a better job. But, 
but we know that this government has been talking big about security and their first and foremost mandate they did not deliver on. So, yeah, I mean, look, I mean, I, I was listening to again on the BBC, they had, um, can't remember his name, Ephraim something who was a former head of the Mossad. And he was like, look, this is objectively an unprecedented, not since the Yom Kippur War, can you point to an objective intelligence failure of this magnitude? There's just, you know, and what, and he says, there's, now's not time, yeah. but there's going to be a commission and we're going to look at this, and, you know, and I can, I can imagine the fear of an angry Israeli commission trying to figure out who screwed up is going to inflict in some people in the bureaucracy. But I think your point is a really good one. And it's one that I think has parallels in the American context in the sense that um, Limestone has been on the podcast, the remnant a few times. Um, uh, he's a policy wonk guy who does a lot of demography, but he worked in the department of agriculture. And I remember I the first time I had him on the remnant or maybe the second, um, he made this point about how like American conservatives are really good about talking about like reigning in spending and shrinking the Leviathan state and, and, and hating government and all of these kinds of things. And he's like, like I, I, I have sympathy for some of those positions or whatever. I mean, I'm really grossly paraphrasing him, but this is how I remember it. And, um, he says, but you actually need people in government who know how to use the levers of government effectively. And um, this is one of these things that is hard for, in our cartoonish sort of performative politics age, we think the people who talk the toughest on TV necessarily have the right. skills to actually implement what they're talking about, right? And so you can talk a big game about immigration stuff. You can talk a big game about all sorts of things. But if you actually don't know how to like use the law, right. use power, use politics. And look, I have a lot, a lot, a lot of disagreements with the Obama administration's handling of all sorts of things. But one of the things I think a lot of conservatives who think everything is about bumper sticker talk don't understand is that sometimes people in the other party who are vulnerable on the charge that they are weak on national security stuff have a much greater incentive <laughs> to actually do national right, security right, stuff right. smartly because they're going to get screwed, right? And so Obama took out bin Laden because he understood how vulnerable he was on all that kind of stuff. I mean, it was the right thing to do too, but like he took a big risk. They worked the system to find bin Laden and they killed bin Laden. And I'm glad that Obama did it. But one of the reasons, one of his political incentives to do it was that it was, it was sort of, this is a grotesque way of framing it, but it was sort of like a sister soldier thing. It was sort of like, I'm proving to you that these criticisms that I'm weak, that I I don't care about national security, that I don't take these threats seriously. Well, I'm doing this and that takes those charges off the table. And, and to a certain extent, rightly so. And like Ehud Barak, you know, he had, you know, he was sort of squishy from, you know, a lot of, from the good perspective on a lot of things, right? But he was a serious guy who, who'd served heroically in the armed forces, you know, um, and he understood that, you know, that labor had this impression, you know, had this reputation, fair or not, of being too weak on this stuff. And that gives him an incentive to take it seriously. And, you know, that's, that's how the system should work, right? <laughs> you know? You can argue that for the same reason, almost every Israeli peace accord was achieved by a right-wing government in Israel. Right. Yeah. 
No, exactly. It's it's sort of a Nixon to China thing, right? Right. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, guys. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. So, I mean, we're, we're going longer than we originally planned, but um, so the communities that were attacked, right? Um, this is just more an informational question on my part. Yeah, yeah, yeah. People keep calling the people there mm-hmm. settlers. Now, I understand that there are there are communities, you know, settler communities where they're deep in Palestinian areas and the word settler has some merit to it. Right. Are all of these places like that? Because there's also the problem with calling some of these people settlers. It makes it sound like they just got off the boat from Minsk. <laughs> When in fact they're all Israelis, right. and they've, more, more, most of them were born in Israel, and so they're Israelis moving to a different part of what they consider to be right. Israel. H- how should ignorant Western media types like me parse all that? Okay, so first of all, let's be clear that the 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 rockets are landing all over Israel. Everywhere. They hit Tel Aviv shortly before we started recording. Yeah, yeah. and my mom, my mom has been locked in her apartment in Jerusalem for, like, basically since it started. Um, yeah. So, the, the idea that they're only targeting... I, for, I don't know what kind of moral argument is trying to be, like, smuggled in this, but right. the idea that if you say settler, it basically is equivalent to saying, oh, well, they, they targeted military targets. These were military targets. Like, right. no, 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 no. These are colonizers. These are colonizers, right? and that's <laughs> therefore, yeah. No, these are c- civilians. If you want to argue about their legal status vis-a-vis international law, it's fine. But these are civilians. So whatever right. you, you can do you smuggling in, there's no moral justification at the end of this line of inquiry. Um, but... The the different types of settlements. I don't think we need to bore skiff listeners with, the, with exactly the difference between the the, the Green Line and, and A territories and B territories. But there there are different territories that are basically divided uh, around the A the period in which it was absorbed by Israel and B mm-hmm. the legal authority that Israel has decided to apply to it. So mm-hmm. some some territories Israel decided to completely annex and claim this is this is Israel period we're not even going to argue about this and other territories they decided to keep at, under an occupied territory status in order to at some point have some leverage to negotiate peace deal right. give away land exactly you know, give, exactly some yeah. land exchange in the future um, 
And the reality in those territories, the, the, the lived reality in those territories, uh, has changed over time because at certain periods, Israel incentivized people to move into some of these territories, while not into others, sometimes as a strategic move, sometimes as, a, as an ideological move of expansion. It's very complicated, but each territory has its own status. Now, the, the most of the towns around Gaza are part of what we count the Otef Aza, which is the... Uh, Gaza circumference or Gaza envelope. Mm -hmm. And those are small, usually poor towns that existed before the disengagement from Gaza in 2005. And um, their status as settlers is not in the same vein of what people imagine when they're actually thinking of settlers in the West Bank. That's not most of what's happening in, in the Gaza circumference or envelope. Those are poor towns that mostly suffer the brunt of Gaza rocket attacks. Mm -hmm. And many of them are actually old school kibbutzes. Uh, we can go further into the ex legal exactitude of their status. No, no, that's I don't fine. think it's that yeah. interesting. Yeah. The, the, only, the only thing that matters is, these are, A, these aren't territories that Israel considers Palestinian, like the the West Bank, where some mm -hmm. some settlers will still try to build their tenuous illegal settlements within Palestinian territory, um, mm -hmm. is some Israeli governments kind of turn a blind eye to it. Others go immediately and try to stop it. But the people living around Gaza live in a territory that, for the most part, Israel considers as we've disengaged Gaza and drew back our forces so that we can unilaterally define this as mm -hmm. our border. Now, of course, right. this is still not fully annexed in the sense that there, there, is, there will be some negotiations if there ever is some kind of peace with the Palestinians, and probably there will be some give in those territories as well. But for the most part, calling these settlers is, is like saying all of Israel's are, or no, most of Israel's right. are settlers I, in some sense. Sure, we are all just evil colonials. But right, I mean, and also, I mean, it, these communities are on the Israel side of the wall, right? Yeah. I mean, so um, the of the, know, not the, so, the not so not so Wally wall, apparently the semi permeable yeah. wall, as it turns out. Um, and and your point about the international law thing is it, it's it's worth putting just an exclamation point on it. In so far as perfectly legitimate to talk about the legal status of some of these places according to international law, but if you're going to invoke international law. You need to acknowledge that international law also says you're not supposed to drag people out of their homes and murder them, <laughs> right? You can't, you can't live, if you're going to live by the law, you got to live by the law, right? I think that's and, more of a norm and, than a law. <laughs> um, um, oh, God. All right, so just last question and then we'll get out of this. Um, wait, wait, I want to ask you a question. Okay. Because uh, I, 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 I'm thinking, I want your political perspective on this. I know you don't, often talk about Israel and moral out outrage aside, I wonder what your thoughts are about Bibi's handle of the situation. I wonder how this is seen to you as somebody who's been paying attention to the political evolution of Israel. So it's funny you ask that because I was going to ask you a political question about Bibi going forward. And so here's my impression, totally open to correction from you because you know Israeli politics considerably better than I do. But I suspect 
that BB is, to the extent he's thinking about politics, non-war related politics at all. And I think, you know, look, I mean, I know people who don't like BB. Uh, I've met him once, um, uh, um, twice. Um, he he deserves some of the criticism he gets, right? I mean, let's just put it that way. And we can argue about which criticism is fair and which isn't. But um, I think ultimately the guy loves his country and he wants what's best for his country. And you can argue about what whether his vision is actually what's best, but I think he believes it. He also likes to be president or prime minister. He likes to be in charge, right? He loves politics, longest serving prime minister in the country's history. I suspect... It was my impression that he really didn't like having to form the crappy coalition that he formed. I think he thinks that some of those guys that are in there are pretty scuzzy, but it was uh, the price he had to pay to get back into power to form the coalition and all that. And every politician is capable of a lot of self-delusion about how my country needs me, and so therefore I have license to do all sorts of grubby things in politics that I otherwise would find fault in in others, right? That's, there's a lot of ego involved in this kind of stuff. And, and so I'm kind of, the question I wanted to ask you about was this in a weird way could be a lifeline for, there's going to be a real opportunity for BB mm. going out, going forward because a unity, unity coalition government, my understanding, this is the part I don't know about is like, if you're going to form a coalition government, a unity government, you're going to give some of these cabinet positions to different people than who currently have them. Right. And this is going to allow him to swap out right. some of these really problematic people with better people. Right. And who would be bad for him politically at a time of peace, but much preferable <laughs> at a time of war. And if they get through this relatively successfully and intact and all of that kind of stuff, on the other end, it's entirely possible to see that the sort of the crazies who were kicked out are pissed at, at, at BB, but some of the moderates and normals who were brought in for this thing stick around and he gets a better coalition coming out of this than he went into it with, which I think would be good for him and but good for Israel too. Does that make sense? It makes a lot of sense if I'm imagining BB of even five years ago. Yeah. The thing that really scares me, and you know, I, I feel like I, I may have violated the second rule of the remnant. If the first rule is no math, the second rule is is no emotion. So I've already <laughs> exceeded some lines of passion that should not have crossed. Um, For the record, I've cried several <laughs> times on the remnant. So yeah, you're doing fine. <laughs> um, but I, I, when I think about it, it, it really shakes me. Um, the Netanyahu's policy, or even more than policy, the, the Netanyahu doctrine has been retain the status quo with the Palestinians at all costs. You don't you you pretend to give some land to the or to 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 make some homage to the the settlers in the far right while actually not doing much. And you pretend sometimes to make gestures uh, to support the, the, left, the, the, the more liberal dovish causes while not doing much, where his vision is 
there is really no solution to be um, hashed out with the current Palestinian government. And all I can do is maintain the status quo as safely as possible while pursuing better policies internationally with other countries Mm -hmm. and maybe completely reimagining the Middle East map, investing in the economy, making us a superpower. But this kind of dance of making sure that you keep Gaza mostly safe, that is in (laughs) blockaded, for say for Israelis, Mm -hmm. um, without it boiling over, making sure that the Palestinian Authority retains control in the West Bank so that it can police its own upheavals. All that requires such finesse, so much delicate mm-hmm. diplomacy and, and you know, actual seven-dimensional chess, mm-hmm. which Bibi, throughout most of his career, has proven completely up to. And then the past two, two and a half, maybe, maybe three years, late-stage indictments and the, and the current kerfuffle with the coalition and the judicial reform, his focus on the Israeli media, his focus seems to have shifted. And like deep down, I think many of us, even BB critics, thought that, well, but he's still Netanyahu, so maybe he is obsessing on, on stupid laws like, the, like reforming the Israeli media and trying to control mm-hmm. it because that's his little pet obsession as, and, and always has been, or this, the judicial reform. But he still has a grasp on the geopolitics, which to most Israelis is the thing that matters most. And what happened yesterday makes me think of, you know, World War I. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the Kaiser, uh, what was his name? Uh, William, Wilhelm II, right? He's the, he was the Kaiser mm-hmm. at the time. He inherits from Bismarck the most convoluted, complicated um, network of alliances that Bismarck has put together. Bismarck has created the world order that Wilhelm II inherits. And Bismarck was a master dancer when it comes to diplomacy and geopolitics. And Willem II is a moron. Mm-hmm. And, 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 you know, is, is braggadocious and nationalistic in the dumbest sense and doesn't understand at all how to hold all these different, all those intricate threads together and drags the entire world into one of the worst, most hor- horrific wars in history and a dumb war, it's right? A dumb at the end of the war. day, it's it's a dumb, it was the dumbest war. And the war. only yeah. reason it happened was because you had such a delicate network of, of allegiances, of alliances, that, and treaties that was formed by the one person in the world that was able to yeah. keep it together and keep all the powers in just the right balance and knew how to make the dance. And once he was out of the picture, which was also due to Wilhelm's ego, once he was out of the picture everything collapsed. Mm-hmm. So you think he's tur- he's he, he he went from being Bismarck and something he's kind of gotten like Giuliani-fied and become exactly. Wilhelm. Yeah. That's my and that's what I'm afraid of. Until yesterday I was thinking surely there's still enough Bismarck in him. And now last night I'm like this is for this to happen under his watch is unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Um and so I don't know if even if he has the statesmanship and grace and, and, you know, if he grasps the magnitude of the moment and brings in 
Gantz and Lapid is, is, is the, the moderate opposition leaders and create a, uh, joint coalition with them. I don't know if that can save him the, this utter embarrassment is such a, such a puny word compared to what this is. Yeah. Um, I, this, this is the, uh, what was it? The four season landscaping moment. Yeah. Just, just a lot bloodier. Um, Gosh, I don't want to. I don't want to end it on that note, but we really do got to get out of here. <laughs> but, um, um, but at the same time, I mean, like, doesn't doesn't that suggest that that he won't last long, right? I mean, if if there is there's going to be, I mean, again, right now everyone is just in self defense mode, unified mode, and all that kind of stuff, but. Um, and I, 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 oh, that's what reminded me because you didn't really close the circle on it. And it's a point that you made in Slack earlier about why this isn't a 9 11, mm. which we kind of teased at the beginning. The 9 11, in America, the 9 11 thing was famously called a failure of imagination because we just didn't think such a thing was possible. You grew up in a country where there are whole bureaucracies of very smart people, experienced people, whose job it is, is to think someone wants to do this every single day and to be on the lookout for it. So like in the wake of 9-11, there were a lot of recriminations and a lot of backward looking, finger pointing and all that kind of stuff. But everybody kind of had an out because nobody really could have thought something like this was in the cards. Like in Israel, it's a lot, there are a lot of people, you know, it's like, what would you say your job is if not for thinking about this and looking for this, right? And so it may be that like, like BB gets a pass for a little while while there's the fighting, but in the wake of all of this, you know, I mean, like if BB loses his job, I mean, it's sort of like people who think it'd be so terrible. It would be just so unfair for Donald Trump to lose his job that they make these wild concessions to all of the damage that would come with Trump getting the job again, right? Like, it is not worth the health of the United States of America for any politician to be elected again just to own the libs or anything like that. It is not worth the survival of, of Israel that Bibi gets to go out on an honorable grace note at the end. And my, son, my hunch is, is that if, if, if it really becomes clear that this was just a really grotesque dereliction of duty on the part of his government in a way that the way that we kind of suspect but don't know yet um maybe he just doesn't survive and so be it yeah that's i'm not worried about losing bb from politics because i think whatever his talents may have been it seems like they may have reached their expiry date right um what what terrifies me is that, well, first, I don't know who is going to take his place, but without even getting too doomsday in my own head about what the government is going to look like afterwards, the things that I feel are almost a certainty at this point is that the sort of pain that Israel is going to inflict on Gaza in the next few weeks is going to be like nothing we've ever seen. Yeah. The re 
all over the world, which will be tragic. I mean, I, I, I can't, I can't even, I can't bring myself to really think about this. I'm, 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 yeah. I'm in several layers of denial about what's going to happen now. And, you know, and especially if I think about like the, the, the Gazan refugees that I interviewed, all the, 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 the hundreds of thousands of people there who did not ask for this, did not, did not want Hamas to start this right. and are the people who are going to suffer the consequences of Hamas's hubris. It's not even hubris. It's Hamas suicidal right. attack. Um, does it count as suicidal? Is it vicarious suicidality if you inflict it on your people but not on yourself? Anyway, because the leaders are still going to be hidden and protected. But anyway, the, this is going to happen. The next step is protests all over the world. And some of them are going to be violent. We're going to see arbitrary attacks against Jews that have nothing to do with Israel, as we've seen in the summer of 2021. Um, it's, going to be, it's going to be ugly. And, the, <laughs> and, 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 and the mood in Israel is going to get worse. And, and, and I mean in the Arab street in Israel, in the Palestinian, in, in the Palestinian mm-hmm. Authority, and in the Arab towns, in the Arab-Israeli towns. Again, like we've seen in May 2021, we're probably going to see riots. We're going to see upheavals. We're going to see something that's much more, that resembles civil war more than two standing armies. And I, I, I don't even want to imagine what this is going to, uh, how this is going to play out regionally with Saudi Arabia, mm-hmm. with Iran. I don't know. But those steps are almost guaranteed. And, and it's already horrific enough to, to understand how this is going to play out on the Israeli psyche. Which means, if at the end of all of this, Israel comes out and is, you know, intact, no nukes have been launched, everything is, like the best case scenario for Israel, Israel is going to be a much darker place. Mm-hmm. You know, in the past couple of months, the far-right government wanted to introduce corporal punishment into Israeli law. We don't, execute. The only person that got executed in Israeli history is Eichmann. Mm -hmm. And the far-right government wants to create an exception that allows the execution of terrorists. What's a terrorist according to their definition? Probably tantamount to a Palestinian or somebody Mm -hmm. of Arab nationality. So, not great. This is going to happen now. There's no world in which we come out of this and all of Israeli law is going to be much darker. And some of those you know, bright lights that have made Israel such a bastion of liberalism despite its circumstances and despite some of the atrocities that it does commit, the fact that it was able to somehow within, again, my two favorite words, within its own cognitive dissonance maintain this light of liberalism, I think the chance of this light remaining after, after we emerge from this is very small. I, I hope to be proven wrong. I hope that somehow our resilience, our moral resilience will, will prove itself. But I'm scared. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to, I, I don't have the expertise to forcefully push back on it, but I suspect you're wrong. I, I, I hope you're wrong. I hope I'm wrong too. Right. But I, I suspect you're wrong. I'm not saying that there aren't dark days ahead. I'm not saying the bad things won't happen. Um, I totally agree with you about, like, to use the terrible prison metaphor thing. Um, Hamas is like a prison gang. But a lot of the Gazans are like hostages 
of a prison mm-hmm. gang. They're not members of the prison right. gang. And sure. they're the ones who are going to be disproportionately punished. Exactly. Now, and yeah. that's terrible. And that's going to set off a chain reaction of people who are rightly horrified by that. But they're going to assign all of the blame on Israelis rather than on the prison gang that initiated this this garbage moment to begin with. But, you know, I've spent a lot of time the last seven years thinking about liberalism and culture and all these kinds of stuff. At the end of the day, hotheads, fringes, fanatics, notwithstanding, every society has them. Israelis are fundamentally decent people and have, and they can be pushed to states of vengeance and extremes and all that kind of stuff. And there can be momentary lapses where the average Israeli is much more accepting of dark things than they otherwise would be. But I think that there is a regression to the mean of a, of a people's soul, of a people's nature. And long-term, I really don't think that we're going to be saying in 10 years, in 20 years, we're going to be looking back and saying, yeah, that was the moment that Israel became a police state, or that was the moment that Israel became this horrible place. I, I, again, I don't know. Not of us know, but like, I put a lot more faith in the sort of the steady state nature of the, the sort of center of grav, moral center of gravity of a people. And the idea that Jews, given their history, are going to permanently turn into the, the kinds of demons who've persecuted them for thousands of years. I, I don't, I don't believe it in my heart. We'll wait to see what we think in my head, you know? As a, as an inveterate pessimist, I often, hope to be wrong, but I, I, I don't think, I don't remember ever wanting to be wrong more than now. So. Yeah, no, look, I get expect the worst. You'll never be disappointed, but <laughs> yeah. you know, that's where we are. All right. Adam, thank you so much for doing this. We were going to do this for like 10, 15, 20 yeah. minutes and we did it for an hour and 10 minutes. Maybe what we'll do, you can keep this part in or we'll take it out depending on what you want to do. You can edit it out, but I can just say, um, we can put it in this gift. We can keep it there for a little while and then maybe we run it as one of, as a remnant, you know, if, if we want later. Um, You're the boss. He who signs the checks. Yeah. All right, my friend. Good luck with all this. Um, I actually go, I have to go make dinner. <laughs> Thanks. I don't mean good luck with like Israel. I meant good luck like getting the podcast yeah, out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and if there's anything I can do, you yeah, know, of course. broader picture for your family, and just let me know. Thank you. All right, man. Hoping the best. See ya. Bye-bye. Okay. Again, that was the conversation that we had last night. Um, now, two nights ago, I guess, depending on when you're listening to this. Um, or over the weekend or whatever, we're going to try and get, we're going to, we're going to try real hard to cover this story from every angle that we can. Obviously this is difficult to cover. There are a lot of institutions that have a lot more resources to do it. This is one of the reasons why we really want more people to subscribe because the more subscribers we have, the, the better we can cover things like this, the way we want to cover them. Um, we are primarily a subscription revenue publication and that means we need subscribers and so for the freeloaders who listened to the podcast and enjoyed it but aren't paid some subscribers to the dispatch we love you but we'd love you more if you uh signed up and to the to the the subscribers thank you seriously thank you and expect more stuff in the skiff that will not ever come out from behind the paywall Um, because we want to provide more and more and more value for the people who support us. Um, We think it's a great value already, but we want to do more because we want to encourage people who are subscribers to stay, and we want to encourage people who aren't subscribers to, what's that word? 
subscribe. So thanks again uh, for listening. Thank you to Adam, uh, single name Adam. Um, and I have all sorts of more questions. Or maybe I'll have Adam back for a short conversation in the skiff later this week where I can be like, hey, Adam, I didn't ask you anything about the ultra-orthodox. I didn't ask you about this. I didn't ask you what you th- how you think the hostages stuff is going to work out. Um, and we can cover some of those points um, in a shorter behind the paywall version um, in the skiff proper. But with that, uh, thank you so much for listening and I will see you next time. Lot of love, the skiff. For this, you could get the Joker from Dark Knight just saying, we're going to have tryouts, that which leans into the beta testing nature of this. But I defer to you. All right. Are we recording? We're recording. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.